0: Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is winner of the 2009 Booker Prize for Fiction, Hilary Mantel, whose book, Wolf Hall, was praised by James Naughty, chairman of the Judges, for its ambition and boldness, and the challenges it offers the reader, and therefore the rewards it brings. The book portrays the court of Henry VIII, its machinations and marital tribulations, through the eyes of Thomas Cromwell, a man described by historian David Starkey, as Alastair Campbell with an axe. That there is very much more to him than that is richly apparent from Hilary Mantel's novel. Here's the interview. I wanted to start with the Hans Holbein portrait of Thomas Cromwell, which I think will be familiar to a lot of people and maybe shape, to a large extent, their view of Cromwell the man as someone who's who's hard, cruel, cold, Um, lots of negative connotations, perhaps attached to that and that portrait itself you incorporate into the fabric of the novel and I thought that was a very clever way in a way of taking uh, acknowledging the fact of that portrait and weaving it into um, Cromwell's view of himself and views of others around him can you say a bit about about that scene which happens quite late in the novel and what you were what you were doing there with with images of the man
1: Yes, I I think when Holbein painted a courtier, he was in a way painting the man's office. And a a Tudor minister didn't want to look pretty, he just wanted to look powerful. But of course, because Holbein's a genius, there's always an extra dimension there. In my book, when Cromwell sees the portrait, he is rather shocked by it. He's got no illusions about being handsome. But the hardness of the portrait takes him by surprise. Over the way, his hand is gripping the roll of paper as if it's an offensive weapon. And he says, I look like a murderer. And his son says to him, didn't you know? Which is quite a shocking moment, really. Now, what I noticed immediately about the picture is how Cromwell is penned into a small space. It looks as if Holbein has said, sit there, and then he's pushed the table against him. There's another table at the side of him. He actually can't move. And in my second book, Cromwell learns to live with the portrait, but he realises increasingly that Hans was right. He can't move. His scope of action, as an idealist as opposed to a practical politician, is now severely curtailed. And so he says, artists know the truth before we do. So I wanted to consider what might be the experience of having your portrait in your house, learning to relate to it as, as another self. And then later, though, this is out with the scope of the book, The original gets lost which is quite piquant because of course I think the original Cromwell has got lost.
0: So it's a sort of moment of confrontation really of him seeing himself in an outsider's perspective which in the book itself maybe he's not he's not confronted with so very often.
1: Yes I don't think any of us can be aware even now in an age when we see multiple photographs of ourselves Of quite how we present ourselves to others and in this age of course images were much rarer and it's perhaps rather unfortunate that that portrait and and the miniature which is very akin to it are the only images we we have of Cromwell Mm. or they're the only surviving images anyway and certainly you have a sense of a very grim person which is very much at odds with the picture the spanish ambassador gives of him because he emphasizes that in conversation cromwell is someone who lights up and that heavy face is mobile and his eyes are always on your face and he's always the ambassador says trying to work out what you make of what he's just told you. So you get almost the opposite impression. And of course, he was a man of terrific energy. And that's why it interests me that Holbein seems to append him in there so that he's forced into stillness. It's as if someone is forced into taking stock of themselves.
0: I know that Wolf Hall is a book that you wanted to write for a long time. And I wondered, did you those years ago know that you wanted to write about the Tudor court but not that Thomas Cromwell was going to be the way to do it or was Cromwell always from the very first time you conceived the project was he the way into that world
1: very much I wanted to write about Cromwell there isn't any other figure I would have picked he was the main attraction because I was really interested in the path he took from very humble origins to the councils of state, to be the king's right-hand man, to be an earl. Other people rise from a humble background, but they invariably come through the church. Cromwell didn't take that path. He, he very much created the conditions in which he could succeed, but by doing so, a huge backwash of resentment and ill will, which I suppose must have seemed in his own mind indefeasible at times he had the um, the example before him of his patron and mentor Cardinal Wolsey and and his fourth in power and so you might say he must have known that all along he was bound not to succeed and you know that saying all political careers end in failure sooner or later but he obviously thought the game was worth the candle and with the odds stacked against him he, he persevered and if he had been able to do even a fraction of what he would have liked to do the, the country would have been a very different place but he was always fighting against a self-interested parliament and against entrenched conservative interests but I'm interested in the radicalism of his thought which I will be able to unfold more in the sequel to Wolf
0: Hall. As a novelist it must have been attractive to you that there was a big blank in his from his mid-teens to his mid-twenties when he goes abroad. We, we, we know really very little about what he was doing and I imagine that that allows you certain imaginative freedom as a writer.
1: Yes it did although I, I chose not to construct his story. I chose to construct it only through his memory which comes in flashes I wanted to to catch the process of memory as it's happening which is haphazard really, not logical and we never know what triggers episodes of the past to come back and possess us, so that was the way I wanted to work it I think we're pretty sure that he did join the French army after he'd run away from home at the age of around 15. And then there are various sightings of him in different Italian cities. The various rumours, some of which are collected by John Fox in, in the Book of Martyrs, all these stories can't be true, but they're all of interest. And because I'm without sources really for this time of his life, there's a Really rubbishy Elizabethan play about Thomas Cromwell, which is obviously the product of many different hands and seems to be various different plays as well mixed together. But in this play, Cromwell is a kind of trickster figure and he goes around Europe with his comic manservant and they have adventures. And I thought that I would try to preserve in my presentation of his character something of this tradition, which is obviously how the Elizabethan saw him. And many of the stories that John Fox tells about him, though you wouldn't think it of the Book of Martyrs, but they they have a certain blackly comic flavour. And I wanted to try to preserve that as well. This is Elizabethan tradition but it's the nearest thing we have to go on and it wasn't until later that Cromwell became the unsmiling and grim figure of the portrait.
0: I mean the ob- the obvious thing I had to do I suppose for novelists would be to take the blank and to fill it in and to use the blank in order Mm -hmm. to explain what comes later. And I thought what you did was so much more subtle because you refuse to fill in the blanks. And in a way, you allow that blank to be something which everyone who meets him has to confront. Because so often there are people saying, you know, who are you and... Um, I think the Duke of Norfolk says you are a person and that's about as far as you can get to define him he's a person but he can't he can't sort of place him and ascribe any kind of lineage or identity or explain him away he cannot be explained away and I thought it was very interesting the way you you allowed little things from his past to kind of seep through as you say in memory but but didn't sort of give a give an explanation of who he was.
1: I think this is true to what happened because it would have soothed the feelings of the court if they could have found him a pedigree. But when they actually came up with some obscure Cromwells who had been great men but had lost all their money and they said, you're one of these, aren't you? He he refused to be, which is a very singular thing for a courtier of that time to do. But I think maybe the mystery was valuable to him, that he didn't want to be added up by people. There were all sorts of rumours over who he was. I mean, it's interesting that people said his father was an Irishman, which he was not as far as we know. But what did that mean, you see, in the context of the time? It puts him as even more of an outsider. I think he may have been someone who was content to accept other people's projections and mirror them back. And he doesn't seem to have taken any interest in putting the record straight.
0: And Henry at one point says he, he'll get his heralds onto the case and will construct him a mm. sort of, you know, manufacture him a, mm. a pedigree. And Woolsey, his, his great mentor, creates all sorts of, you know, outlandish stories for him. So there's, yes. there's clearly a desire to try to to try to construct something that will explain the man that he has become.
1: Yes, yes, that's right. Well, this is my device that Wolsey tells elaborate lies about him which of course don't fit at all the persona he projects and this is a sort of running joke but the thing about the construction of the pedigree is, is actually real. Cromwell's reaction was to say I wouldn't wear another man's coat that is to say, another man's coat of arms, uh, for fear that he should rise and pluck it from about my ears. And he obviously had a feeling that it was essential to preserve that integrity, even if he was the only person who knew where his integrity lay. And his past, I assume, was a source of shame as well, because it wasn't simply the fact of coming from such a low place as his contemporaries said it was the fact that his father was always in court that he was a drunk he was violent if it hadn't been for his long record in the local courts we wouldn't know anything about the Cromwell family at all
0: you say come from a low place, and the, the and the book starts literally with with Cromwell on the ground, uh, you know, as low mm-hmm. as he can go. But he's been beaten; he's been abused by his father, and that relationship, you know, from the start is clearly is clearly one that has set the tone for for much of the man he 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 goes on to become. That you know deeply troubled relationship with his own father.
1: There, there were all sorts of uh-huh. stories current in his lifetime about why he'd run away from England, that he was in trouble with the law. And I've really chosen to believe that he was potentially in trouble with the law. He was certainly in trouble with his father. Start starting off, as you say, at the point where he thinks, my father could actually kill me now. So you start this great project with your your character half an inch from death. This scene brought in its wake all sorts of decisions that I hadn't yet made about the book because as soon as I saw this picture in my mind, I realised that my viewpoint was actually behind Cromwell's eyes as the boy looks at the stitching of his father's boot. I had realised the viewpoint and that brought the present tense with it. So all the decisions about the book had really been taken in one line. I think Henry VIII has an ambivalent relation relationship with his own father. In many ways Wolsey stepped in to be his father um, and a much more indulgent and cheerful father, much more understanding than Henry VII had been. and in a sense i think although there was not much more than about 15 years between them i think it's possible that cromwell found a good father in wolsey also and then there's this interesting relationship between cromwell and henry in that henry is shadowed by his older brother arthur who should have been king and everyone is bound to ask what would arthur have been like if he was king, if he had lived, uh, the age gap between Henry and the elder brother is the same roughly as between Cromwell and Henry, assuming Cromwell was born around fourteen eighty five. And then, of course, for Henry, there's there's the question of not being able to 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 have a son himself, and I've raised the question in the book. Is it possible that some men actually can't grow up until they have a son? Um, That's a question I leave dangling, but there's certainly something unresolved in Henry until he has his heir. But unfortunately, it does nothing to improve his character thereafter. I think also about Comwell himself. Whatever his detractors say about him, one thing he was, was a good father. His little girls died, we presume in one of the summer epidemics, so he only had one child left, his son Gregory. Unlike Thomas More's son, Gregory seems to have been a rather underpowered character, and I'm thinking a lot about how does a son live up to a father like Thomas More or Thomas Cromwell? more of that in in the second book
0: do you have a set of rules or is it more intuitive than that for how you deal with historical reality what you what you allow yourself and what you disallow in transmuting history into fiction
1: i suppose i do have a set of principles in that i have to give the reader a plausible version i think so the personnel have to be in place, the dates have to be right. So if I tell you that the King is having a conversation with the Duke of Suffolk, I might have made that fact up, but I have to be sure that Suffolk is within conversational range so that I can say could have happened that way. I draw the line pretty tightly around what we can establish as fact. I don't make things up unless I have to, I suppose. I think I probably draw the line more tightly than many historical novelists. But then once you're getting into people's heads, what they thought is just the perpetual mystery. So I suppose you would say that the greater part of a novel is made up, no matter how reliant on facts it is. I try for every little speculation. I try to have a grain of evidence. For instance, the, the fact that through the book from childhood, Cromwell always contrives to have a little dog. This all comes from some letters that are exchanged between England and Calais in 1534, which is all about getting Mr. Secretary a pretty dog. He'd heard of this new kind of spaniel, an expressed wish for one, and it caused a great ferment in the London-Calais axis because the question was, who would get there first with the dog? And so please, Mr. Secretary. And, of course, that's the kind of tiny personal detail that's a gift to a novelist. And you think, I can really do a lot with that. So there's very little that solely originates with me it will originate in some tradition about Cromwell or some footnote or some at worst I'll be reading between the lines of something
0: and that reading between the lines that you just mentioned is presumably even more important when it comes to capturing the emotional life because you can you can extrapolate sort of factual realistic details or from those but tell me about how you try to recapture those 16th century mentalities because if you i mean if you read that you know if someone reads the, the dry documents that are preserved Often they will seem very remote. They'll be linguistically remote. Their ideas will often seem preoccupied with things which very remote to us. And yet, on the page in your book, they are—they are living, breathing people with with passions. So, how does that act of imagination come about? Do you think?
1: That's a really good question because this is the the nub of it, I suppose, and it, it's almost impossible to answer. There's there's a certain document which is a list of um, figures, um, sums of money. When I, I got this, when I saw this, I got incredibly excited about it and wanted to rush around showing it to people and say, look, look at this, isn't it beautiful? Whereas actually it's just a list of figures, but what it is, it's Cromwell saying to Henry, this is where your money comes from. And it's all one piece of paper. And the idea that someone could boil down something incredibly complex and casually push it across the table and say, that's all you need to know, tells you a great deal, I think, about Cromwell's mind and about his relationship with Henry. Yes, I mean, first of all, there's a fact of the gap between them and us. And I think the only way to start bridging that is to try to get a sense of their cultural hinterland, think what books they had, what what stories they'd grown up on. Books are actually a very important part of Wolf Hall. I wanted to know if someone had read a certain book, what did that book actually look like and what were the illustrations in it and so on the story of King Arthur is very much knitted in to the Tudor legend, and there's a very exciting moment when Gregory Cromwell gets a new King Arthur book, and everyone clusters around to look at the illustrations. And I think you want a sense in that way of what people's cultural hinterland is, and also how they as individuals perceive the world. Cromwell had been in the cloth trade. Uh, he'd been with his father in law in a wool trading concern. He'd also lived in Venice and Florence where the luxury fabrics were made. And the world to him is very much a matter of texture, weight, dyes, colour. So that gives me a fix on how he might have looked at things. And The only way then, I suppose, is to try to feel your people's lives from the inside out. You want to get so that you can feel their clothes on your back. You need to know all the basic things about daily life. It goes without saying. That's not as easy as as it may sound because I think you have to assimilate it rather than just be aware of the facts. For a long time I couldn't see the Tudor world because I was used to looking at the 18th century world and it's surprising how you can go about with a pair of a sort of magic goggles where you only see 18th century beauty, 18th century proportion and when you look at a landscape you slap a frame around it in a Particularly 18th century way, and you're aware of the picturesque and so on. I had to junk all that, and I had to start looking at landscapes. Let's say you look at a piece of countryside, and you're thinking, "What are we going to do with this? Is it down to sheep, or you know, um, is this agricultural land? What will we make it yield per acre?" You fall into that us- utilitarian mercantile mindset where everything can be costed out and put down in a page of an accounts book how you do that i don't quite know i think it's just one of the reasons why a book like Wolf Hall takes a lot of time because hmm. you can't just slap the facts together and get on with it you have to be aware of the psychological shifts as well the fact is that they are much more fond of authority and tradition than we are. Questioning, which is a virtue with us, is a vice with them. Same goes for ambition. You have to recast your moral universe so that ambition is a dirty word, and someone like Cromwell has to spend a lot of time and mental energy denying that he is ambitious while manifesting that he is ambitious in every fibre of his being. And the psychological tenderness is not all on our side either. I was surprised sometimes to find what care people took of each other's feelings in an age when they did the most deplorable things to each other's bodies.